Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned. We might start with Mr Peter Murray if he's up for that because Peter has, you know, got quite a unique um, position in the built environment where he has like quite a huge overall, um, you know, talking to local government, developers, architects, um, goodness, anyone, engineers, anyone in the profession. So I was wondering, Peter, to kick us off tonight, do you have anything, um, do you have anything you'd like to, to say that you, something you've seen or something you're worried about or something you're looking forward to? What does what 2020 meant to you? Well, um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about uh, what 2020 has meant to me. And um, <clears throat> I'd like to say I'm very glad to be here tonight because um, uh, the, um, you know, Negroni has been an essential part of uh, lockdown. Uh, you know, 16th of March, I, I, I didn't even know Zoom existed. I had no idea what it was. And um, anyway, so I realised that uh, discipline and regularity were the, the way you, you needed to get through uh, lockdown which at that stage we thought was going to be over in a couple of months didn't we and uh, so anyway so a, a six o'clock uh, Negroni was absolutely essential ev ev every evening and uh, I thought that would just as as I said uh, a, a couple of months and I'd do it but now I was calculating I reckon I've I kept to one because uh, when you look up on uh, uh, the internet it says that uh, one Negroni is uh, two units as far as your doctor's concerned. So I thought you know, better not have too many. But anyway, I have calculated, I've drunk 270 Negronis uh, since uh, lockdown. So, uh, but I'm still feeling re re reasonably healthy. But I, I, yeah, I didn't know much about lockdown, but I realized that actually what I missed from my normal life was uh, meeting a lot of interesting people, which um, you know, I do uh, in in my, in the job I do, and I thought I'm going to miss that, so I did um, uh, uh, start doing interviews with people on Zoom, and I, I started the first one on the 20th of March, so it's pretty quick out of the gate, I think, looking back now, and um, so I've now done 135 of those, and 135 really interesting people, and you know there is a benefit from being on Zoom is you can speak to anyone in, you know, California, New York, Copenhagen, just, it's it's easy and they, they're happy to spend their time talking to you. They don't have to fly to London and get a hotel and be paid and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's so from that point of view, it's been really liberating and uh, enjoyable. So uh, as, as, you know, in terms of using uh, lockdown to its uh, advantage. I, I think you know that that to me has been a very positive aspect of uh, uh, the uh, pandemic. Uh, one of the other things which I thought was going to be really positive was uh, at London Street Space Program, and I thought it was absolutely amazing that the government, uh, you know, very quickly produced a, a very substantial report on a walking and cycling revolution, which would have. Uh, with the aim of actually changing the way we get around cities. Initially, obviously, a lot of temporary stuff put in to allow for social distancing and to get more people cycling rather than using public transport. Uh, and uh, I had a really interesting uh, involvement with uh, the uh, restaurant seating out in Soho, where uh, London Cycle Campaign sort of got me involved in uh, uh, doing some images for Old Crompton Street and how that should look. And just following 
uh, on the, e the email thread of how that all happened, the an early antagonism of Westminster, then uh, the acceptance that it needed to happen, the success of it, the negative press about too many people, all those sort of things was really uh, fascinating. But more locally, I've been really worried that, uh, uh, you know, uh, and if you look at the uh, reaction to low traffic neighborhoods, you know, in the past, low traffic neighborhoods, uh, people have loved them, uh, largely because they actually increase the value of people's homes. So they like the idea of low traffic neighborhoods. But because these have been imposed so quickly, and people think with no consultation, uh, there's been a real negative kickback. Uh, and I think that's I just hope that doesn't actually push back the uh, progress in terms of delivering better conditions for walking and cycling. And I fear that it might because uh, the car lobby has become extremely aggravated and therefore organized. And uh, even uh, I live in West London, Hounslow, and even uh, very pro-cycling councillors are now becoming uh, rather concerned and uh, less supportive of uh, 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 cycling uh, and, and walking in the area. So one of the things I did here for my local high street was to set up a, a sort of community workshop using a, a firm called Momentum, who are uh, traffic engineers, but they have an amazing guy called Brian Deegan, who is really the, the sort of king of cycling infrastructure and is now advising Chris Boardman in Manchester. But we set up a community workshop to come up with ideas of how we can... Uh, uh, change the street and so the, the idea of actually design-led community involvement gone down very well with the council not with the car lobby and uh, uh, now it's, it, it is it is pretty miserable reading the uh, Twitter responses to uh, you know people getting together trying to do something positive and you read what these bloody SUV drivers uh, uh, think about it which is um, uh, rather depressing but uh, I'm, uh, we we uh, uh, struggling on and, and hopefully we can actually get things to change but I'm really worried as I say the speed with which this has happened induced a, a kickback uh, from the motoring lobby which can be very damaging that same thing happened uh, in uh, 2007 when Tony Blair uh, launched a uh, or I say it's a little bit earlier than 2007 they launched a road pricing uh, strategy without uh, proper consultation there was such a massive uh, response from the motoring lobby that actually uh, road use of pricing was not talked about, wouldn't be talked about by any politician at all for uh, 15 years, really. And it's only now just beginning to get back on the agenda, largely because the Treasury is losing so much money because of uh, people aren't buying petrol because they're all using electricity for their cars, uh, that the Treasury has got to find some other way of filling the hole in their budget. But... Uh, uh, but that, that, that reaction, lack of consultation, as I say, terrified politicians, so they won't talk about it. And I'm really worried that the response that has happened through uh, about low traffic neighbourhoods will actually put off politicians even proposing these improvements in the future. Although so I'm afraid uh, that's a slightly pessimistic uh, uh, end to my rant. Well, I guess, well, I guess, I guess it was... Um, I guess the, the, apparently, though, I mean, from what I've read is that there's been um, a quite a you know quite a lot of positive in, uh, feedback from the LTNs as well, and that um, you know a lot of local people like the fact that they can walk around streets and the kids are much safer, and that uh, so it feels like it's been very polarised. So it's not you know hopefully it's yeah. not just all negative. It's that some people have experienced um, you know the new the new kind of neighbourhoods that they they would like to keep. No, I, 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 think, I think you're right, uh, but um, uh, one of the problems is that actually the, the I mean, the car lobby, uh, the cycling lobby is pretty well organised, but actually the car lobby, uh, when it needs to, really gets, uh, gets going and uh, you know, that uh, uh, they are able to have a major impact on, on politicians. And it's, as I say, it's the nervousness of politicians that we, we have to be uh, wary of, really. Okay, okay, okay. Let's let's see um, what other friends we've we have. Um, how about maybe Amanda Bailey? Uh, Amanda's just—I don't know if any of you've seen—but Amanda's just um, uh, released an amazing uh, uh, white paper looking at um, 
pandemic responses from architects with some amazing contributors such as myself, um, <laughs> uh, although I did very little. Uh, Amanda, what, you know, you've spoken to loads of people. What have you seen or heard or feel? Mm. Well, I think, I suppose what I'm more interested in is, is looking, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, is looking forward to 2021 because I think it's usually this time of year that everyone starts doing their predictions. You know, all the papers are full of, you know, from The Economist, FT, everybody does them. And I think this time it's really, really difficult uh, to know what's going on. And I, and I do think architects, some of that's coming through from the architects I've spoken to, and I think first of all, there's a big, um, there's a question over what's actually happening in the market and what developers want, because I don't think they, they sort of know at the moment because we don't really know if working from home is gonna stay, what the, what the office will look like if people are only coming in to meet their colleagues, what does that, you know, what does the office actually look like? Will there be a new um, sort of type of housing in response to the fact that people are gonna work from home more? So I think a lot of developers are halting plans if they've not gone too far with them. And that's obviously having a bit of a knock-on effect in the market in the sense that architects are being made redundant. I think that's one, that's one obvious thing. I think there's a, a question mark over cities generally. Um, and Peter mentioned this thing about polarization. And this, this idea of the 15-minute city that people are talking about, this idea that you can walk or cycle to any amenity you need, whether it's school or your work, which, you know, is, is very kind of um, on trend at the moment. Um, but I'm not sure if that is actually going to be good for cities. I mean, what happens to the centre of, so of London, which if anybody's been to it recently, mm. feels really sad. Um, and I think the other thing that is an unknown is the kind of lack of policies to get cities back on their feet. Um, I mean, there are policies. This government is doing quite a few things that architects generally don't like, um, like um, fiddling with the, well, not fiddling, it's a major thing with the um, change of use and, and, and all those um, planning changes. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity for architects to to get around the table and to have a voice. But the thing that worries me is that it's gonna be that usual thing of, you know, the RIBA puts out a statement and says it's awful. And, you know, a lot of architects go on Twitter and say, you know, this is, this is not, uh, we don't want this. And it's kind of an opportunity for architects to, to be part of rebuilding um, this, the city and, and London and, and all those other cities and, and towns that people live in. But it's really going to take a huge effort for the profession because there's no leadership uh, really in the profession. It's going to take a huge effort. And I'm not sure how that's going to look in 2021. Um, I mean, I have some positive things to say, but, but that's the thing that I'm kind of getting from interviews I've done with architects. Well, I'm, uh, I know that there uh, might be um, someone else who'd like to reference the whole uh, PDR issue. So this might be a good time to uh, check in with uh, Jazz, who, um, uh, who, yes, just today said he was feeling very depressed <laughs> about this. Yeah, I think I'm going to be one of the um, the architects that uh, Amanda references. It just complains on Twitter and, and doesn't do anything else. But that will be my um, New Year's resolution to to get more followers and get my complaints out to more more people. Uh, now, I was in um, I was in Eastbourne today for a site visit, and uh, I was on a sort of like a kind of second tier high street, so not the main retail promenade, but kind of like a local a local uh, linear centre. And next to our site was um, a local betting shop that had obviously gone out of business. And in there, they, the, the, the ground floor had been quite obviously converted and they had sort of net curtains in the front and the shop front had been very poorly adapted. It was a really sort of long, narrow, deep unit and uh, had been, you know, sort of haphazardly converted. And I just sort of stood there looking at that and I just felt sort of this sums it up really and if there was a an image that sort of represented the true face of the government's building agenda it would be something a lot closer to that to that shop front rather than the kind of pastiche tree-lined streets that they 
claim to be sort of promoting. Um, I, I don't know if anyone's followed the news today that uh, Robert Jenrick is talking about sort of reevaluating the formula to um, to kind of allocate how they how they calculate where where, where growth is happening just because there was too much backlash from increased development or perceived increased development in the southeast um, amongst a lot of sort of Tory constituents and and council members um, and I, I, I just feel like this sort of influence the 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 the, the, the re-emphasis on on brownfield redevelopment and sort of uh, developing the um, 20 greatest towns and cities is is very much a welcome one. That's very much the right attitude. I think that in itself is is the right strategy. But there's no, to me, it seems that there's no investment in sort of um, planning policy, in in infrastructure, in public transport, um, into local authority planners to kind of unlock all of that thinking. Um, and and I, I'm worried that they're going to rely on sort of new classy permitted development rights, which um, is probably not the, the time to go into it now, but they're really quite far-reaching in terms of how, just how much you can get away with. They've, they've removed the, the cap on, on, on floor area, so you could get some quite mega structures converted into, into quite poor, poor housing, which will, I guess, strap local authorities even more of their, 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 kind of, their, 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 their income. Uh, and, and further kind of undermine affordable housing delivery. So I'm, I'm just worried that the government, sort of, for me, the big stepping back kind of politically, the big thing of 2020 has been sort of making quite outlandish statements and then not doing any of the hard work to kind of deliver, to, to, to make good on those statements. It's kind of like a... They've had quite a lot on their minds, haven't they? They do, but they don't do that. that I don't know. Maybe I'm feeling particularly complainy today because <laughs> I need a break perhaps but it's kind of like world beating test and trace all over again like you know they, they just throw around these phrases like building back better building back beautiful they don't do any work to actually understand why is it that so many big PLC house builders overpay for land in the first place and then can't afford to deliver like a sud, let alone a, a tree-lined street. You know, they don't talk to you know, people in highways who, who won't, you know, who complain about uh, having trees ruin your displays and undermining all these kind of things. It's just sort of sound bites. And I guess, I guess that's the thing that really frustrates me about, um, about some of the stuff we've talked about this year. I mean, I, I, I completely, I, I think I completely agree with Amanda in that I, I really one of my big frustrations is that architects aren't more involved in kind of levelling a, a quite nuanced critique about this stuff. Because I think if we can do that, there's a much, much bigger market for us out there. Like, like registered architects are sort of involved in a criminally low amount of work that happens across the built environment. So from the big, big house builders just banging out their sort of standard cookie cutter houses to you know design and build contracts and, and we all know the, the problems with them there's a I think if we engage with sort of the reality the, the commercial realities of a lot of the stuff we're we're working on there's a much bigger market for us and I think that 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 might be something you know we should really try and try and push in the new year um, but just to sort of end on on a semi-positive note rather than being completely negative I think that there, there has been something nice about um the way Zoom has has allowed you, and and Zoom and, and I guess social media in this year has allowed you to kind of make virtual friends, sort of thing. So like Rob, we had a good chat a couple of weeks ago, and there's a lot of people on this call I've never met in reality, but we've maybe had an exchange on social media, or we follow each other on on some sort of you know on Instagram or LinkedIn or or, or Twitter or something. And I feel like it's it's made it a lot easier to kind of connect with people and exchange ideas and it will be it'll be really nice if you know some of these virtual meetings can become actual sort of meetups in real life i guess in 2021 that's an amazingly uh, handy segue <laughs> jazz because we've actually got um harriet harris on the line who i believe is in new york as we speak yes although my backdrop for those historians in the room is lena bobardi obviously <laughs> Um, it's my kind of uh, Trojan horse approach to, way to um, approach to ensuring people know about female architects. Um, but, but anyway, but I mean, you know, you know, if we were if we were in Ombra where Harriet last spoke for the Negroni talks, um, obviously you wouldn't be with us because um, you'd be thousands of miles away. But um, thanks for joining us 
uh, and also for coming straight after your book launch. Oh, yeah. It's really appreciated. But, you know, from your perspective, which is very different to our sort of insular London um, world, you know, what, what do you, how, do, how would you comment on 2020 or, or what have, what, what's kind of jumped out at you as... Gosh, is any of it insular anymore? I mean, you know, it might be that we're all suffering in our atomized um, ports of isolation, but in fact, we're sharing very common experiences. Um, I mean, what have I learned? It's interesting, you know, I, I signed up to be a dean of a school, not a dean of a school in a pandemic. Um, uh, so it's been a different, let's just say, it's slightly different to my imaginings of what the role might entail. I think that I have a bunch of concerns about this year, looking back, I suppose. What have I learned? Certainly, if that's the question. Well, I mean, one... I'm not sure Siegfried Gideon was right. Mechanisation really hasn't taken command. We've got virtual platforms, we've got all of these new technologies, and we've had to learn about how to use them very fast. But in a way, they're not, they have, they carry many of the same issues, if you like, of the studio environment. So they don't democratise by default. Um, we know from all the studies that have been done into facial recognition um, uh, services and so on that actually many technologies carry race and gender biases, which really affects how people interact with them and affects how they're represented on them. Um, tech does not by default democratise classroom dynamics over representation and diversity. That still is a responsibility of schools of architecture regarding hiring and schools of architecture regarding pedagogy and curriculum. I think, you know, looking out to the profession, we've seen statistically that, yes, of course, 45% just in the UK, as an example, because I could bore you more with US statistics that are a bit unrelatable. Um, in April, Dazine ran an article um, that identified 40% of UK architecture firms had lost um, the majority of their work as a consequence of COVID at that point, or it at least had been frozen. So there was a huge income deficit. And of course, disproportionately, the people that get fired or furloughed um, when there's a downturn are more likely to be part-timers who are more likely to be women by default because they're more likely to have children and therefore not be able to work full-time. Even those that do are more likely to be um, shoveled out the door. So that's been interesting, seeing how that's affected um, what was, I think, an ongoing struggle to address equality of gender representation within the profession, not to mention race and beyond. Um, but of course, it's very hard to motivate um, uh, many businesses to keep useful data in that, funnily enough, in that regard. So I think that, you know, we've seen COVID exacerbate inequality within our profession. We've certainly seen it exacerbate inequality across society. In New York, if you're African-American, you live in certain zip codes, you're more likely to die of covid um, due to overcrowding um, more than anything else, um, not because of lifestyle, which is how the uh, right wing li like to position it. Um, so I think that's where architecture has become actually quite complicit in the way that we plan and design our cities and our houses and our communities. So that high density communities were actually far more um, at risk from COVID um, than those more affluent regions in the city. And I'm sure that's true of London, very easy to transpose those spa same spatial proximity concerns to London, I think. Um, and I think that one of the other preoccupations I have is that, you know, we are now all working harder and for longer and frankly for less. We've all taken pay cuts in the school. And I think it's across all schools in New York State. We have now a kind of deans group for all of the New York State deans. And that's not just the city. Um, and it's it started out as a kind of, um, you know, a sort of club and it became a sort of, I don't know, a sort of therapy group, really, as COVID progressed. And I think what's interesting is realising we're all in this together, of course, in that we're all facing pay cuts and, and diminished budgets. But it, in a way, what we are showing is our ability under modern capitalism to work for longer, for less um, and, and also harder in many ways. And my worry is that we won't get that kind of ping back when we start to see budgets recover because we'll have proven how capable but also complicit we are in working in those kind of, I would say, um, extruded conditions. So that's going to be a problem and we have to keep an eye on that. And I'm sure that's the same in practice offices where you've lost colleagues and you're suddenly doing two people's jobs. Um, and I guess one of the things I find frustrating is, and this is a very recent article, but, you know, Foster and Zaha did architects withdrawing their pledge to cut carbon, exploit, um, carbon emissions really cheesed me off. And I guess why it is, is because it's it's almost like, well, it, it would be so much less forgivable if we weren't facing a sort of, at this stage anyway, sort of slow or edgy kind of um, recession condition, because one, I think we would have more energy to sort of direct towards really pushing back at this. You would have expected something out of the RIBA, some pushback, something. I don't know, maybe I'm just naive and far too optimistic. But I just think that that would be so much less excusable outside of this crisis, COVID crisis context we find each other in. 
or find ourselves in. And I think that what that suggests to me is when the curtain drops on the COVID catastrophe, behind the curtain is a climate crisis situation that has far accelerated while we've all been distracted worrying about um, the pandemic and its impacts um, on everyday life. So I think if I could now just turn to some positive thoughts, <laughs> I'm not always an easy habit in my case. Um, what do I want it to look like? Well, you know, I have to say Black Lives Matter movement in the US was fantastic for me. I came into Pratt on a very, very strong social um, equality agenda. I, I had, you know, I can be very articulate about that. I can put that in my budget requests. But then, of course, it's a different story when you have Black Lives Matter movement mobilising in response to yet another police murder in this country. And in doing so, giving me a far stronger mandate and helping me mobilise faculty and students to work really collaboratively on pushing towards addressing inequality within our pedagogy and curriculum. I think that, you know, the unemployability of graduates at the moment um, and also many students who rely on part time work, never mind to actually just, you know, afford the odd drink now and again, just to get through school because their grants aren't enough. Certainly those from lower income backgrounds. So in many cases, it's, a, it's even a barrier to entry if there's not part time work available. So the COVID, um, you know, crappy employment collapse, if we could give it a nice, easy kind of alliterative name, the CCCC, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how without that income stream, there's a renewed, I think, um, emphasis on school curriculum to really um, start to consider how do we build out the capacity for students to understand marketing, business strategies, um, other business models, cooperatives, startups, etc., and more on entrepreneurial activity that could in a way negate the need to you know to kind of be employable and become propositionally employers themselves as they set up small practices and again that extends what the remit for school is not just as a qualification engine or even conveyor belt cynically but to think of us as actually providing incubator space for startup businesses and that's something we're really trying to push our school toward but I think moreover it's really down to this question of you know once we lose the distraction that is COVID really how do we work together collectively across um, education and professional practice to really bring climate crisis and by implication social justice because the two are entirely codependent back into um, a priority for us as an industry and as a sector and as a discipline in order to get the change we need to see um, taking place. No, I mean, goodness, you've <laughs> covered so much in that, but I think it's, um, it's so relevant that you're talking about, um, you know, students and recent recent graduates and, and how we support them. Um, and we actually have um, Sean Adams here, who is one of those things, recent graduate, I guess. <laughs> and an award-winning graduate. <laughs> He's very, very talented. <laughs> you might not say this, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sean, if you could introduce yourself as an award-winning graduate, that would be... Uh... <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just a graduate. <laughs> but thank you. For, but thank you. I, th I think, listening to what everyone said, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, is the word community. I mean, I'm going to be quite positive and, and optimistic um, Good. In, in, in reflecting on, on 2020. And I think if we, if we think of community, we can already start to think of the ways in which we've all kind of connected and, and Jazz um, already kind of alluded to this quite, quite eloquently, that this year we have, we have seen an increase in community. We have worked together to, to solve some of the most pressing issues in, in our society. So as Harriet um, j just mentioned, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and, and also the, the, the climate crisis, what I think is, is really interesting in this year, uh, if the pandemic aside, is the way that we're all going through these issues together. And in a way, we're, we're all, whilst we're all suffering together, we're all coming together and, and trying to solve the issues um, in ways that we've never seen before. I think before, architects were kind of seen as, as the designers that almost can't, can't deal with these global issues. But th this year, we're seeing architects speak out about many of these, many, uh, of these issues. If we start with the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, for, for example, we saw as that swept the globe. Um, and we saw uh, as uh, across the world, uh, people are coming together, community groups are coming together to tackle um, and, and face uh, um, face off this kind of racial inequality, which is a massive pressing issue. And if you think of all the distresses and anxieties that are happening simultaneously uh, as the pandemic is kind of uh, uh, is a backdrop to everything, it's incredible to see how how this kind of sense of community has has really formed. And I think. This sense of community goes beyond kind of geographical uh, um, kind of boundaries in the same sense that now uh, over Zoom, we're able to connect with people acro across the globe. And I think this level of connectivity is 
is going to allow us to then tackle uh, other issues. So if we think of the climate crisis now, um, and, we, and we think of connectivity, we're seeing architects, anthropologists, scientists from across the world being able to come on Zoom and, and, and have conversations and speak about how do we tackle these issues? How, how do we come together and, and, and face things instead of kind of saying, oh, well, I'm on, I'm on the other side of the world. I don't know how exactly we'll ever be able to meet up and, and discuss this. And I think this is, 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 is fantastic. Being able to have um, these kind of open forums, get professionals, um, enthusiasts, um, and, and people that have a wealth of knowledge coming together and all kind of sitting under a, a, a virtual umbrella and, and be able to give their kind of thoughts, opinions has really helped us kind of benefit uh, this year. And I think if, if we kind of go back to students, I think the sense of community and students has made students um, realize that we're no longer waiting. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not a student anymore. I'm a graduate now. But um, students or, or young people are no longer waiting for this change. They're no longer waiting. They're seeing that there's other people across the world that are saying, you know what, I want change. And, and, and we're seeing these groups develop. Um, this year, we've seen so many initiatives kind of uh, birth. And, and people say, you know what, I'm not waiting for the bigger establishments or the bigger organizations to, to make the change that, that I want to see. I, I'm going to kind of speak over Microsoft Teams or Zoom or, or in, in, in my local environment if I, if I can manage to speak to them, um, uh, but obviously social distancing, of course, and, and make that change. So whilst it, it, it has been a, a, a really difficult time for, for students and, and young people um, in, in, a, in a way, it's also been a, a, a real kind of cauldron of opportunity because now we're seeing a lot of young people not, or, or students not being able to, to get jobs or graduates, but they're thinking of innovative ways to use their skills in ways that we, we, we're rarely seeing. So now we're, we're hearing everyone kind of say multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. And I think it is incredible to, to see that, that um, architects um, and designers are no longer kind of being siloed to, to one industry, but are now thinking of bigger issues and, and coming together to, to, to solve to, to solve uh, many of these issues. But again, if we go back to the word community, I think this year we've seen members of communities that are, are almost kind of uh, uh, under, well, I don't even wanna say underrepresented, ignored in, in, in a way because um, due to coronavirus, we're, we're seeing that the elderly, for example, are unable to, to leave their homes and, and go and get uh, um, um, food or get the resources that they need. And we're seeing people, uh, neighbors and people in the community coming together to support those uh, in their neighborhoods. And I think, I think this is something that is, is crucial. Um, in, in some of the work I, I, I've been doing with young people, I've seen many young people from, from uh, boxing gyms come out trying to support the other people in a community um, that they're actually connecting with people in their community that, that, that they never spoke to before ever. Like uh, many people, their neighbors now, because, because there's not many, uh, well, I mean, during lockdown, when, when, um, when everyone wanted to escape, you were seeing people kind of go into their, to their back garden and, and, and speak to their neighbors or go into the park and, and speak to their neighbors. And I think what we're seeing is, is, is we're seeing people really having a real sensibility to an understanding um, with others. So we're seeing a lot less kind of judgment and and uh, and, and people kind of looking down at others. And, but we're seeing more acceptance and understanding, and people trying to to get to know people better. As 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 with obviously we're all dealing with uh, um, all of these anxieties at, at the same time. So I think if if I have to look at twenty twenty one, I see us being. Um, like globally coming together, uh, coming together for the, for the better. I mean, of course we have many pressing issues. Uh, Brexit seems to be the least of our, our worries. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's crazy to, it's crazy <laughs> to think that because there's just so many things going on in, in the world. But I think we're, we're increasingly gonna see people speak out uh, uh, about these things. And, uh, and I think, again, social media has been like a community in, it, in itself. It, it's been a platform for people to speak out, for people to come together, for people to kind of like, um, after a long day, just throw out all of their, their stresses and, and then um, re recognize that there's like hundreds of other people that feel the same. And I think in 2021, we're only going to see this kind of increase of, of of community and listening and and, and development because as as uh, as each of the speakers have said, we've got some real serious issues to 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 deal with. If we think of the pandemic, we're thinking of we'll, there, there's um, uh, racial inequality that we're, we're that, that we're we're still facing, um, the climate crisis, like 
if we don't come together and start working as architects, designers, and and every other profession, um, I don't really see how we can survive. So I think I'm quite optimistic to see in ways in which um, architects kind of extend this remit and, and we develop kind of flourishing communities across uh, across, across the UK and, and the rest of the world. It's so, it's so nice to, so nice to hear someone talk positively about um, social media. I don't think um, I don't think I've heard that for for so long. But I I, I sort of didn't think it was possible. Um, I mean, I mean, talk, you you talked about people across the built environment maybe coming together. I mean, I thought it'd be quite interesting. Sort of the I guess the final person we we sort of primed ahead of this was Duncan Blackmore, who's um, a developer, and I was just wondering, you know. How is you know from his perspective, you know, has has there you know is there kind of like um, have the economic pressures been tough? You know, do you, do you see any difference, or is it business as usual, and it's just a bit a little bit more awkward? You know, what are the planners like? Um, I, I I don't know what narrative kind of shape you're hoping for from this vlog, but. You know, none that. at all. None. No narrative. <laughs> for no me, narrative I mean, the No, no I mean, narrative shape from, from the evening. And you know, I think listening to Sean, uh, you know, I, I'm slightly sort of apprehensive about killing the buzz. Um, I think this should be a <laughs> roller coaster. I want to, I want to go. I want <laughs> to go okay. down. It's without question been the worst year of my life. You know, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think probably if I had Same. to doubt there being a worse year, it might be next year. You know, um, I think the. Uh, the sort of the, the, the kind of enormous anxieties that have built through this year, um, you know, the, the professional uh, components of that anxiety are minuscule really compared to the personal ones. Um, and I, I find it really quite difficult to take that question that seriously, if I'm completely honest, because the truth about my work is that it's slowed down a lot, partly because people have become unreliable because they're in quarantine or they're dealing with personal issues and, uh, and including the planning system. And I think we have to be human and understanding that that's, part of coping with what's going on in the world, you know, um, and that's part of my own personal coping strategy has been to, to slow down, you know, and so I think that the slowdown in my work is, is sort of a personal defence mechanism, really, that's the truth. Um, so not a great deal has happened, you know, what was supposed to take eight weeks to finish has taken eight or nine months, and that's partly because I'd rather have one carpenter on site than six, because I don't want yeah. them to die, you know, without being sort of dramatic about it. Um, I think the way that I feel about 2021 is that, you know, I've, I don't know, you know, obviously it's, everyone's listed all the sort of things that anybody sane would be anxious and terrified about this year. Um, I think there are three big things coming up which are going to kind of inform how I feel about 2021 quite quickly. One is, I suppose, actually one of the interesting things that's happened is sort of um, collapse of space. You know, I'm not in London. I'm, I feel completely exiled and disconnected, untethered from London and from the city. And I'm, I am a Londoner through and through, but I've been there twice since March, once for a hospital appointment and once to go and talk to a loss adjuster about a leaking roof, neither of which were the kind of cultural uh, visits that, or kind of uh, personal things that I'd like to do in London. Um, and so I feel like I'm as close to kind of Mar-a-Lago as I am to Hackney sometimes, you know, and the, the kind of listening to global political podcasts and all that, you know, it's just, it's horrifying. So I think, I think quite a lot about the sort of Georgia Senate runoff, you know, on the 5th of January, or about how the vaccination programme is going to get rolled out, or, um, you know, about what's going to happen in Brexit in the next few days. And if, if we could kind of score three out of three on those, I might feel quite cheerful, I think. Um, but without a kind of 100% hit rate on those three, I think it could be fucking appalling what's, going to, what's about to happen. And I think all of the optimism about the democratisation of sort of digital space and the sharing of, uh, you know, um, of information, you could feel exactly the same about the sharing of disinformation and you know, the spread of fear rather than optimism. And um, I suppose if I'm groping for something positive, it might be that um, the, the, the kind of speed, the sort of acceleration of all this bad stuff, actually climate crisis, you know, racial equality, sort of the problems in lots of political things needed to be brought to a head. They needed to be mm, yeah. better, you know, they needed to be, to rise up everyone's agenda, you know, personally, collectively, politically. Um, and the acceleration of that, I think, you know, if you think of that, that analogy about the boiling frog, um, perhaps, you know, the, the, the vigour with which the water has boiled this year means that we've, we've woken up 
a bit or more people have woken up than otherwise would have woken up and that kind of that a sort of type of collective action will mean that some of these things get better outcomes than they otherwise would have done if, if it had been a bit more of a slow death you know um I, I suppose that's my hope that essentially it's like the kind of be victorious over the darker forces in the world you know and that, that the people who use new technologies and new media and sort of interconnectedness for positive mean, uh, reasons outnumber and outmuscle and outthink those who use it for negative ones you know that's that's what I hope. So sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think I think I think you've raised a really interesting point, and I do think that you know um, there was, I mean, from my perspective and from other people I've spoken to, there was some despair about um, situation in America, and then you know there was this huge collective action, uh, as far as I'm aware, from the you know during the election for you know a sort of. Um, for positive change, which was, you know, you know, super encouraging to see as an outsider um, in London. I mean, uh, I haven't. I, if it's all right, I'd like to ask Neil Murphy if uh, he was willing to say something because just, uh, just I don't know if he if he wanted to speak, but uh, I saw him nodding his head uh, a lot there to what Duncan was saying, and I and I know that he's recently had a very sort of optimistic scheme announced in the press. And, and, and so maybe he's maybe he's feeling the same, exactly the same as Duncan, or maybe he's feeling a little bit more positive. Um, I, thank, thanks, thanks, Rob. And um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a bit of a relief, really, to finally get a project um, in in Wolverton and Milton Keynes that we've been working on for you know, in one way or another, probably for about eight years. And and in our current sort of can we can we get consent and building capacity for about three years. Um, you know, in, in for planning, which of course always feels like an end, but we all know it's a beginning, really. Um, and um, I mean, that's been delayed p partly because we have a an overseas-based funding partner that has basically been, you know, up a height since Brexit. Not not so much since the referendum, but since it became clear that you know, staying in the single market and generally treating it as a cosmetic thing wasn't going to happen. And it was actually going to be deal or no deal, pretty painful. Um, and and also, you know, with, with COVID this year, you know, just just finishing the, the bits that, you know, you kind of need to do to get a planning application together has been, has been, um, has been difficult. And also because it's a project that's very kind of politically sensitive locally, we've been We've not been able to talk to people, you know, a huge amount of what we did on this project, you know, we're, we're in Milton Keynes, which, as, as you all know, is, is not a city generally built around walkable neighbourhoods. We're basically trying to redevelop a car park for, for a kind of high density, low rise scheme with no parking or hardly any parking. Um, that, that requires an awful lot of time spent talking to traders and people, you know, who are worried about their livelihoods because even though I don't agree and, and many people might not agree, you know, they believe that, you know, parking is the lifeblood of small towns. So, um, so it, it has been difficult, um, but at the same time, it's provided some space to think and, and kind of look at whether the project was the right project. Um, and kind of, this is going to sound really smug, but some of the things that we were trying to do anyway, like um, learn the lessons from Marmalade Lane about, um, about providing people with more shared private space so that they so that even in an urban environment everyone just gets a lot more space to roam around even if it's shared with their neighbours rather than private to them and all the rest of it you know it's kind of the right thing to do and also I think somebody mentioned earlier just looking at like the, the building types and, and saying well would what would this be like if actually you were shut in it for three months and you had to work and you had a kind of toddler kind of next door um, and I mean obviously the things that are verities anyway you know, have been reinforced. So decent daylight, decent ventilation, dual aspects, you know, everyone having outside space is, is, is kind of really important. But I think that, you know, the thing, and certainly I felt this being certainly in the early part of the year, kind of locked down with, with three small children was, was the ability to kind of get out of your house and have immunity on your doorstep. And so we, we pushed a lot of the things that we would have pushed anywhere a little bit harder, particularly around trying to keep cars out of some of the streets and things. But, you know, in truth, I mean, as, as Duncan says, I mean, it'd be great, you know, we, we've almost got three, three, four months peace now while it goes in for planning. But 
if we're still, I mean, and hopefully with a vaccine, we're, we're sort of heading out of it. But, you know, I, I'm not, I mean, it, we, it would be great to start building it next summer. But um, at the moment, I, I personally wouldn't feel particularly comfortable sending a hundred, you know, construction workers to a, to a dense urban site and, and asking them to, to crack on. So there's a lot of, un, there's still a lot of uncertainty, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think I'd sum up, you know, space and time to reflect, but also, you know, lots of uncertainty and, you know, who knows what 2021 holds. So I'm going to, I'm going to sit comfortably on the fence, um, enjoying the sensation. Okay. So we've got Debbie Downers, we've got, um, uh, super positives uh, and Neil sitting on the fence. Um, I mean, we're, right, we're, we're in uncharted territory now because we sort of had some people we invited to say some words. Um, but kind of, I guess, it's a, it, in a way, it's a free-for-all now. Although I don't, think, I don't think we can just unmute everyone's mics because it might get embarrassing. So um, I wonder if, you know, if someone, if someone wants to uh, have their say or uh, ask a question, they could. I know that, I mean, if Eddie Bray was willing to say something, I know that he's been quite vocal in the, um, in the chat. If he wanted to... Uh... I, I mean, glad to. I mean, I think I, I've been really inspired by hearing what, what everyone has to say. I think um, we've covered a, a lot of important issues and I think this is almost a vindication of, um, I suppose, one of my key outtakes from this year, which is the the importance of, of listening and um, and nuance, really, that um, I think, as Sean touched on, that this whole crisis has affected so many people in so many different ways. And I think uh, it's important that we remember that. Um, and it's incredibly complex. And um, we just need to have that empathy about how it how it has affected so many different people from so many different walks of life in so many different ways and we'll continue to do so and so if if anything in 2021 I, i'd love to see this um spirit of openness and dialogue continue and um that that we continue to to kind of learn from each other and be be willing to share and um not too quick to judge and um, be willing to forgive and allow people to to grow and learn, um, because I think it's it's the only way that we're going to progress. We're not going to agree on on everything. Um, you know, I'm probably not alone in in um, sort of daily holding my head in my hands about Brexit, but um, I do appreciate that. Uh, you know, I've got to work together and and come together with with people that hold radically different views, and that um, that is the only way forward. And um, uh, no, well, I mean, I totally agree. And I think, um, I don't know. The, it, it, someone said it earlier on that uh, Brexit has become a sort of uh, non-entity, despite the fact that it, you know, it, it, it's ever pervasive. And it, it, you know, certainly in this country, it's going to rule our lives. Um, I know that um, uh, Merlin was, um, uh, you know, thinking about from his perspective as a sort of both a journalist uh, and an open city member, you know, he sort of has a broad overview on the industry, but also, you know, open city interacts with a lot of real people, if you want to call them that. I mean, you know, what do you, you, know, what do you think, Merlin? Um, yeah, thanks Rob for having the opportunity to contribute and like totally fascinating stuff that everyone's been saying this evening. Um, I think definitely on that cultural point, it felt like, a lot of the events, both within our world of architecture and public events, stopped. And there wasn't really a big space where the problem of stopping those events was expressed. So it seems like things, things finished and it wasn't really a big problem for a lot of people, which is, which is sort of draw, building on what Sean said. We desperately need these events because you have a kind of adjacency that happens in them where people get together and then ideas happen. And sometimes the kind of informality of bringing lots of people together in a room allows it to happen. What's interesting about with the work with Open City is that we've, we've done an awful lot of live programming this year. And so what's fascinating is the kind of reluctance to do live programming when you can do it outside using social distancing. And for example, we use uh, Zoom uh, for our walking and cycle tours, and it means that everyone can stand quite far apart, and they really do. 
So I think I'm quite interested to think about how um, possibly 2021 could see a bit more confidence uh, in both the architectural and public sphere to sort of get out there and do some more live programming because it is really, really important. It can be done uh, quite safely. On the other side of the work that I do, so I write about procurement and certainly in 2020, it was terrifying because I think it, around about April or March, it really wasn't clear what was going to happen with construction. And um, there are a lot of people getting very kind of worried, uh, you know, even with, can a competition go ahead? Can, can we do these things? And then actually what happened was there was a massive surge in things going ahead. In many ways, the only thing that consistently stops procurement from happening is Brexit and the kind of uncertainties around Brexit. Every time there's an uncertainty around Brexit, procurement frees up. Remarkably, the COVID pandemic did very little to stop people from commissioning architecture. And I think the point is, is that there is a massive amount of building and construction and improvements to our built environment that need to be done uh, in response to this. And certainly, if you look at, say, for example, in the recent budget, there was an announcement of a four billion pound fund, uh, like the Towns Fund. What on earth is that going to mean? It's a kind of mixture of transport improvements and cultural projects. So this is literally building the sort of museums and other spaces, which in many ways, because they're enclosed, are struggling to get funding right now. I think there's a bit of a risk that we repeat some of the mistakes of the past. I think one thing that's happened quite big in public sector, public sector clients have realized the risk of working with a non-diverse profession, but they've mm. expressed it in quite an odd way. So we, uh, there were, Southwark Council got in a lot of criticism from the Mayor of London for a framework. And then you had the head of Meridian Water setting up the terms for a procurement that required bidders to team with, uh, with women-led, BAME-led and local practices. But I'm hearing some very unintended consequences of that. So for example, BAME-led practices basically being harassed to join bids so that other people can win work in quite mm -hmm. a cynical way. Yes. So that's an interesting one to think about. I think when we look at 2021 as well, when I speak to developers, there's a kind of bullishness around the vaccine and the idea that the, it's 2021 is gonna be an utter boom year where people are out partying and going on whatever, as many holidays <laughs> as they can possibly do and partying. And you know, it's like all, all the stops are out. But then again, what, what does that actually mean? Because it's not really a very intelligent response to building the new kind of world that we need. It's effectively rinse and repeat. And then having said those analyses, uh, the other thing, I would just mention a few projects that I think are interesting. So I think as architects, we like to actually discuss projects a little bit. I think um, Croydon Council commissioning architects to look at the giant Westfield site. I think that's very interesting because that was, you know, it was meant to be the savior of Croydon. Croydon's got a million and one problems, but um, getting an interesting bunch of architects to look at the Westfield site and how you could uh, environmentally friendly, socially sustainably, renew that. I think that's very interesting. I think the resolution of the um, the court case at ZHA is really interesting. And the, ZA, uh, the Zaha Hadid Foundation with a 100 million pound foundation um, endowment, I think that will have an interesting impact on architecture. I'd be, I, I don't know what, but I think it would, be, it would be interesting to see how what happens in 2021 with that. I think with the Venice Biennale, will that go ahead? it does and then how can it reach wider audiences possibly thanks to the zoom engagement we have now um yeah and also i'm quite interested to see visuals of the Noel mclaughlin cambridge maggie center i think that would be a really <laughs> interesting one haven't seen it yet but i think that could be my favorite one yet okay so right merlin is just uh, blown open the doors um it's, it's almost too much for me to process um i would i've got a question for harriet um, but before we get to that, I would just like to ask Jazz because um, I saw him nodding his head in the little in the little tiny Zoom box, and I, I know that uh, you know we we were we were chatting the other day for too long, totally off topic, about you know diversity and box ticking, you know, and that we're at this amazing moment, but you know, could it just sort of go completely the wrong way as, as things often do yeah yeah i mean it's um it's, it's certainly that that has been that and covid have been the kind of biggest i think uh takeaways for, for my year I'd, I'd share a lot it has been probably by far away the most challenging year of my life both 
personally and, and professionally, just I think being cooped up does, does strange things to your mind. So I'd echo a lot of the sentiments that we heard previously. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the other big thing I think that's happened in our profession is there has been a recognition of the lack of diversity. Um, and and that, that is something I, I very much welcome. I think it's it's well-meaning and it's well-intentioned, and um, we've certainly seen the benefits of it. Um, but I, I, do, I do, I think the thing we were talking about, Rob, is that I think sometimes um, it can just take take the form of a very sort of box-ticking exercise without sort of exploring the wider socioeconomic reasons as to why sort of architecture remains so sort of stale, male and pale. Um, we, you know, we, we, I think it needs to be linked to a wider conversation about how hard a profession it is to access, how long it takes to train, how poorly remunerated it is. And, and I think that's a lot to do with the fact that just as, as architects, once you qualify, how poorly you are um, compensated for your efforts by the market. And, and I think we need to, as a profession, make ourselves more relevant. I think as a macro idea, that probably sort of in the next 10, 15 years would go a lot longer to making sure we have a more diverse roster of, of, of emerging talent than just sort of going in a, in a kind of um, trying to correct what the sort of racial bias that we've had up until now. I mean, I, I welcome that, but I have had conversations with other colleagues and friends who sort of, I'm worried, I guess, in some ways, is that, that, that having a um, sort of directly promoting brain practice and brain architects in the way that we are, we sort of, there's a lot of people who, who might feel neglected by that and feel that, well, I've had hardships or I've not come from money or I've come from a part of the country that, that isn't so privileged and they feel left behind. So I think, I think we need to talk about discrimination in the round in both sort of uh, gender, race and, and, and class, most importantly. Um, I mean, I, I, I grew up in London and I think that in itself is a privilege, um, mm. not, not necessarily a, a very expensive part of London, a very sort of, you know, uh, quite a very sort of ethnically diverse part of West London, but I was always 45 minutes away from the centre of town. And that, that in itself is a, is a kind of privilege. So I think um, we need to have a wider discussion of, of, of privilege and why architecture so acutely um, prioritises those with, with privilege. I hope um, Hugh's listening, because I think this could uh, obviously be a topic that uh, could be an entire Negroni talk all of its own. I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned before that we've, we've tried, we tried to do a talk on class and it sort of fell apart because it's such a difficult, difficult thing to define. And we ended up, we ended up calling it who's your daddy and, and, and talking about um, privilege, which, you know, also involved, <laughs> seemed, seemed to also involve people whose, whose dads were famous architects. Um, but uh, I don't know if, uh, I think this is, I've uh, got the right Lisa, who, I've tried to unmute her, who had a question for um, Harriet specifically. Um, hello, extremely inspiring, um, amazingly eloquent, and wonderful to hear in this uh, dark and dreary evening, um, both positive and the negatives. I wanted to ask Harriet really briefly about your experience working with younger Mind. I recently did a crit at university the other week and I was extremely inspired by the ability of the first year students at the time to kind of overcome certain condition biases or perspectives that I think I've um, suffered from um, and I wonder whether there is through your where you've touched and worked on um, within the different uh, academic worlds that you've been involved with whether you've sort of seen something fresh or new or um, a vision, an ability to to not be so prescribed or or indoctrinated into divided ways of seeing the world. And I'm also curious if you were 15 now, for example. I wonder how these this last year has impacted the way you've developed, how your brain's developed, how your perception of the world outside has developed, and where you fit into it, and how that will then play out through the design and evolution of our world? It's a big question, but I just wanted to, to pose that to you and to see whether you have noticed anything particularly unique or anything that inspires or challenges you or that you weren't expecting from your yeah. work with young, young people. It, it's a good question. And you know, even big questions, we have to still have a crack at answering them. So thank you for asking it. 
I mean, I suppose, you know, my first response when I saw your question in the chat was to think of the fact that I often wonder whether architectural education is wasted on the architecture profession, because I think that we're, there's so many um, skills and experiences and knowledges we're exposing students to, and then they go into professional practice. And it's not that there's a skill shortage in the industry, it's that so many of the skills we get encourage students to graduate with don't find purchase in a way within professional practice context, which is why I wrote my last book. I'm not trying to do a book plug, but this was very much at looking at if there is a recession on and you're having, there isn't employment for you within the current crisis or indeed within the pr current practice as is um, industry, then there are other applications for these, these skills and these knowledges you have that can be far more lucrative and often sometimes even relevant and impactful than being an architect. Um, and so that's something I'm really quite preoccupied with at the moment. But your question also asked about seeing a shift in behaviour. So one thing that makes me quite cross often is hearing people describe younger generations as lost generations, you know, because obviously they are facing exploitation that is far more acute than anybody um, it, that we, you know, any any living generation, I would say, within the UK anyway. Sorry, Siri wants to have an argument with me at the moment. Um, you know, um, has actually lived through. So we know that the baby boomers, you know, by, as the name implies, we don't need to go into too much information about that. And again, it's a generalisation of how they benefited from welfare state opportunities which did quite a lot to address class disadvantages coming back to this this you know the, the, the endlessly challenging word that we often find hard to interrogate but those um that mobility opportunity is really diminished now so i think we're starting to see a real decline in mobility especially because obviously economics and race go hand in hand in racist countries such as the UK and the US, and there's a ton of statistical evidence to support that, um, it's likely then by implication that we, we will see less mobility for um, BAME within the UK um, in, in light of the current recession. But one thing I would say though about young people's values, um, because I would, in, despite the fact that they are in a way experiencing the worst of all hardships really in the moment, the way that they're, frankly, the UK behaved completely responsibly and letting them come back to universities in the first place um, and then obviously have to sit in locked in halls no wonder they're on a rent strike quite frankly good on them um, but also just more generally the cost of education the lack of part-time work to prop up that education and so on and so forth the mental health crisis that many of them are facing and then of course on top of that no real tangible prospect of getting work I mean that to me sounds like if I was trying to write a horror movie prescription for a breakdown that would pretty much be it right so I kind of think um, you well one would expect into that would be a bunch of very angry students who are kind of you know in a state of atrophy over the problem and in fact I've seen quite the opposite so when I started prep we had one or two diversity groups we had a you know a Latinx a Chinese um, group and NOMAS which is National Organization for Minority Architects I've now got 13 diversity groups just in my school so we, I have a special council for that um, for those groups so we meet the dean and the students meet and their representatives meet every three weeks to kind of continue to discuss what we need to do in the school to address all the major issues, not always explicitly about race or diversity in other forms, but just more generally um, understanding what it is they're going through. So I think that there's, uh, I, you know, activism now is become necessary, not optional. And it's very interesting seeing young people really move into that space with real confidence and attitude, but it's only because they don't have much choice. Um, and I think that, you know, I can try to be optimistic about Biden um, and I would hope that whatever comes next for the UK regarding Brexit, um, there, there is always going to be a willingness for whether it's schools or companies or organisations or in, you know, even international partnerships just try and rise above the national thresholds, boundaries and restrictions imposed by stupid politicians. So I think we just have to, I, I think, design more elaborate and effective ways of supporting our graduates, working collaboratively collaboratively across contexts because I don't know what else we can really do and I don't I think it's important to have some kind of approach rather than just to to be a critic of it but I'm I'm confident in in this in these younger generations as to what they're going to do but I that does not mean we should step back and let them struggle away in order to achieve it we still have to mobilize and find ways to support that movement that social movement that is being a young architect in the middle of a pandemic thank you uh, absolutely yes agreed Yes, yes, I think it's 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 tough. It's it's not right, is it? It's not right to put the onus on young people to just look after themselves. Um, so I think totally we've got to um, try and, and and help where we can in a situation where it's it's not ideal. Um, uh, so we're, we're, I guess, what I don't want to do is keep everyone stuck on the line um, all night. 
Um, however, there's no, um, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, requirement for Negroni talk to sort of end. So we've always had this thing, if you've ever been to the, the Ombra one, you know, the, the event finishes and we have a sort of summation from Hugh, which I might ask him uh, uh, to do very shortly. But, you know, after that, what used to happen at it, in the sort of physical environment is that we would, we would, some people could go and they could catch their tubes and other people would hang out um, and, and keep talking, keep debating, you know, go off into smaller groups. Um, oh, and I see that uh, Harriet actually has had to leave because she's got to go to the dentists, which I totally um, respect. So, um, so I, I think what I might do is ask you to do a sort of little, little thank you and summation, and then maybe we can people can go if they want to. And uh, also, I think we can turn off we can turn on all the mics, and people can just chit chat and send, and get anything off their chest that they want to. Um, so uh, yeah, Hugh, I mean. Yeah, well, um, yeah, thanks, Rob. And um, firstly, thanks to you for sharing that. It uh, must be interesting for you to suddenly be in the, uh, the hot seat as if we haven't done so many of these and arranged them over the, over the, over the years. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much for hosting the debate and thanks for everybody for contributing. I think it's been really um, fascinating. I think it's, it's sort of everything that we hoped this would be uh, as a kind of a, a less defined talk. Um, I mean, I think the one thing from, from just in, in summation from, from my side, I think there's been a couple of standout things with, uh, with, uh, with the current situation. One is the processes actually can be less tortuous. I think sort of the, the interesting thing with the planning system is that actually the Zoom in relation to planning is almost suggesting a way in which people could be more collaborative and less confrontational. And secondly, um, there's... You know, I think the the response from our um, political class has been largely inept to the point that I would hope it inspires people to feel that actually the established people don't really have the answers. So maybe we we can provide them. So I think a lot of uh, a lot of the conversation tonight was sort of skirting around potentially what do people need to do? What is the role of the architect going forward? And I think when we thought about this talk, that was kind of what we were driving at looking forward into the new year. So that's all been absolutely fantastic. And I thank everybody again for coming and sparing your time to, uh, to both listen and contribute. And um, yeah, we hope, to, we hope we can get back to some Ombra ones next year, but obviously that's out of our hands, but we will probably do some more Zoom, I think. I think this has sort of uh, reignited uh, something about how this works actually. It works as a format. I think we can get the international thing with people like Harriet in as well, which is really interesting, which we can't do in Ombra. So lots of positive stuff. And um, yeah, tune in for uh, stuff to happen next year. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks. Mixing it in architecture.